Welcome to the Present and Sober podcast with your hosts, Sam Goldfinch and Ellie Crow. If you want to make your life bigger, not smaller, then this is the podcast for you. If you can sense that you're destined for more and you're curious about how drinking could be holding you back, listen in and come on this journey with us. Through the interplay of mind and body practices, we will help you elevate your daily life and discover the wonder and potential of going alcohol free. Let's make life bigger together. I was, I was a mom that was, you know, gray area wine drinking for so long. How did this happen? How am I here? And walking in, I remember walking into that, that rest stop and people just staring at me like, you know, you are the scum of the earth, basically. Hey, lovely people. We've got a really important episode for you today. You've just heard an excerpt from our interview with Susan. Susan Joy is a This Naked Mind coach and she has, well, we're so grateful and honoured because she's come onto the show to share her story for the first time. And to say that Susan's story is heartbreaking would be an understatement. We talk about motherhood, we talk about prison, we talk about her journey to alcohol freedom. And we just It's just such, a, such an incredible story and I think it's so amazing that Susan is now sharing this as a catalyst to help other people. And so, yeah, we're we're just really, really honoured to have her on the show. So be sure to tune in for that. And hey, like we've got a couple of things coming up. We've now got a little Instagram that's going to be more active. So come follow us at Present and Sober Podcast on Instagram. The Facebook group, as ever, we've got Q&As and uh, all sorts of fun stuff coming up. Lots of announcements coming up soon because we're rumbling on towards our one year anniversary. Can you believe that? That's amazing. So come join the Facebook to find out all those cool things and uh, and meet everybody in that awesome community. Okay, I'm going to hand you over to me, Ellie and Susan. Another special guest Mm. episode today. We've got the lovely Susan with us. Hi, Susan. How are you? Hi, Ellie. I'm so excited to be here. Hi, Sam. Welcome. This is really cool because um, uh, Susan is a good friend of ours, but she's a new friend. So I'm really looking forward to this episode because we're going to get to learn a whole heap more about her. So Susan uh, is another This Naked Mind coach and she trained in your cohort, Sam. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we, we've got chatting a little bit on the one of our recent masterminds. So the masterminds are a lovely opportunity each week for all of the This Naked Mind coaches to get together we talk about all sorts of stuff, coaching methodology, personal development, marketing and business. And we met Susan within one of those conversations. And Susan, when you shared, there was some uh, some parts of your story, like I, I wasn't aware of at all. And it was just, it was so moving to hear you speak. So I'm really excited to, to get into all of that today. So I'm going to hand right over to you and you can start wherever makes sense to you. Sure. Um, I just want to thank you for the opportunity and say this is the first time I really shared my story in full. And it's a long, yeah, this has been a long time coming, a gradual process. So I'm excited. And if it can just help a few other people, you know, I've done it today. So I guess, you know, my story really will let people know that rock bottoms can happen to anyone and they can come unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And I'll start back some in my history of drinking, just to give you an idea of where I came from and how it worked up to a significant rock bottom. But I, um, 
I grew up in New England in Massachusetts and had a real comfortable middle-class childhood. My dad was a high school guidance counselor. My mom was a French teacher and, you know, really a happy, typical suburban childhood. And my parents always drank, but it was very um, controlled. They would have their one Manhattan every night. That was their drink. And I remember being a little girl and they'd have that maraschino cherry and I'd want to like steal it out of their drink and was like, oh, this tastes terrible. Why would they drink this? (laughs) But they had their little routine after school, you know, five o'clock, they'd have their one drink. And I never saw my parents get drunk but it was always a part, we were Irish. It was, it was always part of family gatherings. Um, and then, you know, go to high school. I was a very typical, great student, um, tennis player. And I experimented with it at 15, probably 14, 15 with friends, you know, you're out in the woods around the bonfire with a beer. And I've always been a little bit anxious and just like, perfectionistic maybe. Um, But that first drink, I do remember it like this feeling of, oh, wow, this is what people are talking about. It doesn't taste that great, but all of a sudden I feel completely comfortable in my skin and talking, you know, a little more easy to talk to boys and all that kind of thing. So I was like, I like this. And then it was never excessive, just on the weekends here and there at parties when we could get it because the drinking age there was 21 at the time. And then on to college and really college was typical, what you expect on the East Coast. Um, I was right on the ocean and we'd rent out like these beach houses that were almost like sororities and fraternities. And, you know, it was fun then. It was like you did it, the weekend sort of extended to Thursdays. Um, in college, but, you know, we, we had a good time. There was an occasional, oh, I overdid it. Um, this hangovers suck. You know, I don't want to do this again, but never in my mind did I think I had any sort of problem and was looking at other people that stayed out later, were drinking more. And I was like, okay, you know, I, I have a handle on this. So graduated from college and met my now ex-husband my last two years of college and we got married right after I graduated. So I was really young and looking back, I I was 22 when we got married and looking back, I, I I have a 19 year old daughter. Now I would say, take a little more time to discover yourself before you jump into something. But my ex was in the army. I graduated from West point and it was like, okay, we're just going to do this. So Married seven years and typical weekend drinking. It did start to creep into, okay, I'm going to make dinner. So I'm going to pour that glass of wine, Um, but nothing big and had my first child seven years after we were married. So 1995 and went through a significant postpartum depression after she was born and I think at that point, my drinking may have ramped, looking back, it did ramp up a bit. And it's just curious to me too. I eventually, I was, I was nursing at the time and didn't want to give that up to look at an antidepressant and just really fought the whole idea. But eventually it got so bad that I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop nursing. I'm going to go on something. 
And I think back to that moment when I asked my doctor, okay, I'm now taking this. I don't really want to be taking this, but we'll see if it works. But can I still have my glass of wine in the evening? <laughs> and, you know, he was like, sure. I don't see why one or two would be a problem. You know, never a discussion about how alcohol can contribute to depression. Mm -hmm. uh, never any questioning of that. So there I was for several years taking an antidepressant and still having my you know, Prosecco at night. And another seven years went by, I was having trouble getting pregnant with my second one, came off the medication, finally got pregnant and had my second daughter and went through the same thing again, but I was quicker to realize what I needed to do. And then again, eventually came off the antidepressant. But then at that point, I think I was in the middle of mommy wine culture at that time. It was just real big in my mm. suburban neighborhood. It was all about, at that point, I was pretty much a stay-at-home mom. I should say I had worked as a therapist. I'd gotten my master's in counseling after I got married. But with my husband, he was in corporate at that point out of the army. We moved all over the country with his career. I think we moved about seven times, which that was contributing to some stress. Moved during my last pregnancy. And then we were settled and my drinking was just pretty much then every night, the kids, it was like my treat at the end of the day, you know, that I've gotten through all the tasks of being a mom and that's my time to sit and relax. Um, yeah. So at that point, two kids, husband was traveling a ton, like Australia, all over Hong Kong. And I may have been starting to question my marriage, but you know, when your kids are young, there's so much focus on the children and just taking care of everything with him gone. It was like, I could ignore parts of my marriage that weren't working. Yeah. But then all of a sudden in fast forward to about 2009, he decided to leave. We were looking at another move and he knew I was experiencing a lot of resentment about the number of moves. We were finally settled. He decided to leave corporate and start his own company with another employee he had been working with. And that meant starting the company out of one of our guest bedrooms. So all of a sudden he went from being gone all the time to doing something completely different where there's anxiety over benefits of over giving up the whole corporate thing. And he's home all the time. Our kids are getting older. And at that point, I was looking back and I was about 42. I was starting to look at like, okay, maybe I you know, need to do more for myself outside of the home. And at that point, I decided to go back to playing tennis. And I think there was a huge shift for me there because I had been a high school player, a college player. So I joined a club and really started socializing more and getting out of the house, away from the kids, away from him. And looking back, I think that's when I became even more disenchanted with my marriage, realizing it wasn't working. I would be with him for long stretches of time and feel incredibly lonely and I, I don't, there's nothing worse than being lonely when you're in a relationship. There's like a new level of being alone. Mm 
And I mean, it takes two people to have a relationship head south. And I take full responsibility for my part of it. And he was a good man in many ways, but looking back, we really weren't a good fit for one another, completely different love languages, just, yeah. And I hit 42 and you might want to call it midlife crisis, but I just spiraled into this, what I look back and think of it as like the cycle of marital indecision, where I did not know whether I was in the relationship, out of the relationship, thinking about divorce. I remember wandering into a Barnes and Noble and just looking at like divorce for dummies and thinking, oh man, this would require a lot. You know, am I ready to go there? And this whole cycle of what do I want continued for really two years. And at the same time, I was doing more outside at the home, home with other friends. He was beginning to resent the tennis and what I was doing there. And my drinking just like really ramped up with the new, so it was Wednesday nights, tennis, drinking after at a bar that was across the street, getting appetizers, you know, that whole kind of social thing, which I loved, but that's where it increased. And at the same time at home, I think it shifted to using it to numb that I don't want to make this decision. I just want to be the ostrich that buries my head in the sand. And, you know, how would I do it financially? I'm scared to be alone. All the fears you have, I'm going to wreck my kids' lives, all that going through my head. So one night after tennis, it was in 2011, I had my typical two to three glasses of wine and went, started home and got stopped for being slightly over the speed limit in a construction zone. And at this point, I was really close to filing for divorce in terms of my decision-making. But when that happened, I got a DUI for being over slightly over 0.08 for blood alcohol content. And I was just completely devastated. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. You know, what do I do legally? And my, my ex-husband knew an attorney was really good friends with him and was like, I can get you out of this. You know, we can get it dropped maybe to reckless op, you know, for speeding. We'll work on that but I want you to commit to the marriage and you're not leaving. Like we're going to take back any court stuff you've done. And I think that was a real turning point where I just felt completely trapped and scared and I need to stay in this and get this under control. And it was, I I did not take what happened that night seriously enough in any way, shape or form. It was like, you know, this happens, we'll get the charge reduced. There's no real consequence. Um, You know, I had my three glasses of wine. It could have happened to anyone. Did not take it really seriously. And I'm, you know, feel a lot of shame about that looking back. But I did cut down some of the drinking out. I did try to cut it back some, but 
and now here we go. This is the, the difficult part. Six months later, still in 2011, went to tennis, did the same exact thing and left in a pouring rainstorm, thunder and lightning that you can't see a damn thing in front of you. And my thought was I should just pull over because I need to stop driving and just, you know, I've had three glasses of wine. I don't want to get stopped, but I didn't, I kept going. And that's when I hit another car and it was just, I mean, it changed my life from forever from that point. Um, we were both injured. She was injured more significantly than I was. Um, we both ended up in the hospital that night where they drew my blood. And I was once again, over 0.08. And I knew at that point when I met with the attorney that I was going to be charged and it wasn't going to be good. Mm. Um, yeah. And then it was a process of the legal system waiting six months to let the court work through its stuff before I would be sentenced. And that's considered vehicular assault because someone was injured. So I was looking at anywhere from like a year to five years. Wow in prison and we didn't know what that would be. Yeah. Yeah. And I was home. I got immediately put on house arrest. So I was at home with my now ex-husband that is just completely devastated, but disgusted with me. Just, it was horrible. I think that was like some of the darkest time of my life, trying to explain to my kids what had happened, what was going to happen. Mm. Um, my kids were 17 at the time and 10. And I knew what I was facing. So it's a long time. It's a long time to be. Yeah. You know, I, like I can't, I can't even imagine the, the immediate aftermath, but to then be in, in that place of um, uncertainty. And I can only imagine the kinds of things that you were thinking and feeling during, during that period. How, how, did you, um, how did you hold it together? At times I almost didn't. I mean, honestly, I had thoughts of what kept me from actually, you know, wanting to take my own life was my kids. I love them beyond all that kept me going. Um, and my attorney did get me to be allowed to go to an intensive outpatient program and to Alcoholics Anonymous and being able to leave the house for those things was huge for me and I developed a relationship with one of the counselors in the IOP program and she was truly amazing and a support to me mm. um 
but at this at the same time it was extremely hard with my 10 year old daughter because she couldn't really understand why mom couldn't go anywhere anymore with her what had happened um she started having some behavioral issues as far as didn't want to go to school in the mornings because she was so scared you know and i just tried to we shared with her enough for her to understand somewhat but you know the fear she must have had the wanting to stay home with mom and trying to get her into a car to go to school and i couldn't drive her to school and yeah that was almost harder than what was to come mm-hmm. um yeah the feelings there were just overwhelming at times and how did um if I can ask how did drinking play into it at the time at the time then I immediately um was put on what we call in the states a scram bracelet where they can tell if you drink anything mm-hmm. so that I mean that's true that I hadn't even thought about I immediately went to drinking nothing after my mm-hmm. first court appearance um And I mean, I was going through so much at the time that that almost didn't even phase me. It was like, obviously, I'm not going to drink. Mm. Um, And maybe part of that over the coming weeks almost helped my mental state of taking away a depressant. Yes, no doubt. Yeah. Um, Feeling better physically. I began to lose some weight. I just... I, I have always been into health and fitness. And I remember at one point, like playing really loud music and running my stairs, like for upstairs to my basement, just, you know, ordered a treadmill, just really working out to get any sense of endorphin I could during that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but couldn't walk my dog anymore, you know, couldn't do anything. So it does take a while to go through the whole legal process of how your blood was drawn, how, you know, the road was marked a certain way. And did that contribute? So there was a lot to go through to get to the point of we are in court. So the, it happened in September. I went to court in May, 2012. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point, I got to speak at my sentencing, which felt incredibly nerve-wracking but incredibly empowering in a way for me to be able to say how I felt to apologize to the woman that I had put through that and I think I spoke for about 20 minutes and at the end of what I said she got up and hugged me and her mom hugged me and we were all just in tears and the judge actually said he had never seen anything you know, quite like the emotion in the courtroom that day. And we both had a lot of family members and yeah, it was felt good to get that, to get that out because too, I, I, the media, I was in a small town in Ohio, really picked up on the story and decided to um, really make me an example of what drinking and driving does and I was on the front page of the local newspaper when I changed my plea you know the whole plea bargaining thing was all in there they had 
what type of car I was driving, like that mattered that I had tennis rackets in my car. So I think there was some making an example of a soccer mom drinking and driving, you know, we're going to show her that this is serious, which I, I understand. Mm-hmm. I, and at sentencing, I came away with two and a half years mandatory. Wow. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was definitely an example of did not learn her lesson with the first time she was stopped and did it again. And this is a violent felony, which is on your record for life. And, you know, mandatory sentence means, I mean, I think growing up, you think of people going to prison as like, well, if you're good in prison and do what you're supposed to, you can get out early. No, you know, when you receive a mandatory sentence, you're in for the full amount of time. But I have to say that, and at that point I said goodbye to my daughter that morning when she was 10 and, you know, told her I loved her beyond belief and I I would be home. And my older daughter too was 17 and it, it was the hardest thing I ever, I ever did. Yeah, I mean, there aren't any words really to, um, you know, at the time, I imagine no words to offer. And even now, like, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, my, like my heart is pounded. I'm just, the, just the, the thought of that, that moment where you've got to say goodbye to your children, like I can't. Yeah, I remember standing in the hallway of my house and just, and when I left that morning, I didn't know if it was going to be one year or five years. I did not know. And what she went through with, you know, without me and it, it has changed our relationship forever, but I'll get into that a little bit. Um, yeah. So that night I, after they took me away and I was in County jail for, you have to wait until you're taken to the woman's prison in Ohio. And part of me was as weird as it sounds, there was almost a sense of relief that I was finally done waiting with the unknown and I knew what I had to do I had to survive this I had to get through it to get out for my children and I was then at that point it was Memorial Day weekend 2012 beautiful day I was moving in a forward direction I was no longer waiting So that was some solace 
at that moment of how am I going to survive this? What do I need to do to survive prison? I mean, it was the same time that like orange was the new orange is the new black. All those shows are coming out and I'm thinking I'm going to be living this. What is this going to be like? I guess you had something to at least work uh, to accept in the sense that when the ground's moving and you just don't know when it's coming or in what form it's coming, you know, acceptance is, you know, it's as challenging in that and very challenging in that scenario. So I can imagine that there was relief as well as it being an incredibly difficult thing to face. So yeah. How did that play out? So take us through the, the, the next part of this journey. Cause it just feels like a really. There's a short period of time where you're in County and then you're transferred. And the whole time you're in County, you keep hearing from there's just people in there. It's so sad that are in there on the cycle of DUIs of a lot of opiate situations. Um, And then someone like me comes in that's just like, you know, on the way to prison for a long time. And there, people were telling me, once you get there, it's not as bad. There's more structure. There's, so I was hearing about that and I'm like, okay, let's just get through these weeks and get there. And I mean, it's just the whole process is just honestly so shameful, so humiliating from the point of the transfer, you're in a van where they're not giving you air conditioning. You could hardly breathe. It was horrible. You have to go to the bathroom. They don't care. We made one stop. You know, you're all in handcuffs. You're like, I was, I was a mom that was, you know, gray area wine drinking for so long. How did this happen? How am I here? And walking in, I remember walking into that that rest stop and people just staring at me like, you know, you are the scum of the earth basically, you know? And I'm like looking at them, like I was you a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. So shameful. And then I get there and I'm just plunged into prison culture, which that could be a whole nother podcast, but I, I learned to cope. I, tried to use the time to figure out what's the best way to survive this. And I've always loved dogs. I think saying goodbye to my one dog at that time was, was partly as difficult as saying goodbye to my children. And she was my companion on house arrest the whole time. And I immediately applied for the prison dog program. Um, I signed up for exercise classes. I did as much as I could. You have to have a job in prison. I, you know, first I was cleaning floors. I was cleaning toilets, but then I realized, okay, I'm going to apply to be a tutor and work with some of these women that, you know, want to get their GED to do things like that. You know, what can I do to make this go by faster and feel like I'm contributing something, but And I've told some of my friends and they just get almost like, it's unbelievable that where I ended up, my bunk mate, you have bunk beds and um, my bunk mate under me was in for life for homicide. All around me were people that were in for extremely serious crimes, 
but you learn in that culture, those are the people you actually want to be around because they are in there for so long. They know the ropes. They know what to get at commissary. They know, I mean, they were organizing holiday meals. I mean, you want to be with those people and not necessarily the 19 year olds that are coming off drugs and that aren't ready to participate in some of the programs and they're just in a really bad space and there's violence and there's things like that. But sometimes people are like, how did you end up? And it's just, you know, everybody ends up where they end up. Yeah. So I was there for about a year and then you're transferred closer to your home. So then I did the rest of the time in Cleveland and was involved in the dog program and had a puppy for a while. And um, he went on to be a seeing eye dog for the blinds. And I followed up with him after I got out. And yeah, so I did get through it. My God, what like, what an absolute bloody experience. And thank God for dogs, eh? Like, I know. Um, I know. There's this little thread that I just want to pull out. When you, when you were talking about speaking in court, speaking for yourself, that the, the essence of what I heard there was this like, the, the radical responsibility that we talk about. And to hear, like amidst, as I said, I, like I can't, I can't even imagine, I've just tried to imagine some of it as you've, you've walked us through and it like, you know, what, what an episode to not have a tissue nearby. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's unimaginable, but to, ha- to, to have a, a little um, glimpse into that experience where you could reconcile with the lady who you'd crashed into, to hear that was a really wonderful thing amidst all of this. And that, that must have, for you, like I wonder, how, how would you describe that in terms of because you kind of you're facing the sentencing, but to have the forgiveness of the person that you've potentially hurt the most, what what was that like? It, it was honestly amazing. It was it was so like the newspaper was there and everything that had written these things about me, and it was my chance to get up and express from the bottom of my heart what I had done, what I had taken responsibility for, Mm -hmm. um, what I had done to my kids and my sorrow in that. And I, I think I ended what I was saying with, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend. And I really told everybody in the courtroom to you know, go home and just hug their children and realize this really could happen to anybody. Mm. And it was just so empowering to be able to be able to do that and thank who I wanted to thank and tell my victim in the whole thing that I was 
sorry beyond belief. That that point that you know we're all we're all eligible is fundamentally important because often we think oh you know well that won't happen to me this you know I'm I'm not that bad Mm -hmm. Um, even like with your story having you know the the first DUI and. I've, I've not been through the steps myself, but I heard that within AA, they talk about, um, you know, this idea of it, like, oh, it hasn't happened to me yet. And this yet being you're eligible to. And that kind of echoes for me with, you know, a lot of things, you know, it's, it's so easy to, and, and part of the reason we have this podcast is, to level the playing field right that there aren't two types of drinker there aren't people that can drink and people that can't right you know we're we're all capable of exactly the same things and it was a really vivid description of you know having to go and use the restroom in handcuffs and people you know this separation oh Mm -hmm. oh look at those people over there they're somehow different to us and from your vantage your no I'm I'm you I'm you it's it's incredible and two how immediately I was labeled an alcoholic by the media by even some friends I saw an incredible distancing of talk about holding up a mirror yeah you know she we mustn't have known that she was drinking in the closet in the morning like, no, I wasn't drinking in the closet in the mornings. Um, just the, this couldn't, they want to say this couldn't happen to me. So she must be this exactly. way. And to receive, you know, and as we know, alcoholic isn't even a medical diagnosis in any way. It's alcohol use disorder. But to be given a diagnosis and told you have a disease and what's the criteria for di- for the diagnosis? Car accident, um, you know, paper bag under the bridge. Like I was immediately put into that group and going to meetings and the meetings did help me from the point of getting out of my house, yeah. but I didn't believe any of the philosophy. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be powerless. You know, that whole thing was going on with me and it, it was more AA meetings in prison and Um, you know, fast, fast forward here to, it was 2014 when I was released, um, came home that day to, you know, my ex had decided at that point he wanted to divorce me, which there, my decision was made for me, which in the long run, um, has proved it's a good thing, but, you know, I came home to, having to still do AA for another year for Mm. being told you can never drink again over and over and over. And what did I do at that point? And I kind of want to get into this a little too, there's shame, but there's, there's this feeling I had of 
wait, you're not going to tell me I can never drink again. I am going to prove that I can go to restaurants and have one glass of wine and be like everybody else. And I fell into that trap of trying to moderate and doing it really extremely well. I mean, I was out to perfect the art of moderation. And I know some people may be listening and think, how could you ever go back to drinking again? I think part of it was that, that pushback over the, you have a disease. Yeah. 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 And it's, and it's often the thing that keeps people stuck. I would have never, ever identified as, as an alcoholic. I would have, I'd possibly identify with being a gray area drinker, um, alcoholic, no. And so if you don't, if you don't feel that you fit into that category, then what do you do? You right. stay stuck. And yeah. for, for, for people that are, for people that sit outside of it and can label you as such, there's so much safety there for them, isn't there? Because mm-hmm. all I, I don't have to look at my own stuff because I'm, I'm not one of those. And this goes right back to that, you know, you're, you're eligible too. And the, the fundamental misunderstanding that there are somehow two types of people. You drink enough alcohol for long enough, frequently enough, and you are going to find that you, you have a problem. There's not two ways about it. It's an addictive drug. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, oh, go ahead, Sam. I was just saying it's why it's so important to, for you to share your story, Susan, because it's a very affronting to people who have a model and a paradigm, the us and them paradigm, and um, yeah, they just—it's the pushback, and and it makes perfect sense to me that you know you weren't heard in that apart from that moment in the courtroom where you felt heard by mm. the lady who you'd um, had the accident with. That's the only time you were eff- effectively heard. So. And when we're not heard as humans, it's like, a, it's important because then we can open up and we can learn and we can evolve. And who knows what it would have been different if the media had actually made the choice to do their job, which is to hunt for the truth rather than double down on a story that already exists out there that does a lot of harm and isn't helping anybody. Like what could, so like you coming here and being brave enough to share this and open up about this is, it's so important because we, we don't want to just have these stories of like, well, what's the same thing? What's rock bottom? Like, what's that? Yeah. Like, what, what's alcoholic? What's that? Like moving targets. They don't exist. It's uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I just want to honor that. That was all I was going to say, but please do carry on. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say too, I, um, when I got out, I, I moved about 40 minutes away from where I lived before I was officially getting divorced, went back to my maiden name of joy and my main objective was to hide. There was so much shame. There was hide and rebuild my relationship with my two children. And if you had told me in 2015, 16, that I would be on a podcast telling everybody this story, I just would, no way. I was just hiding, you know, and meeting new people and thinking, I hope they never find out that I was in prison. Just that, that shame um, is incredible. But fast forward again, really, I did gray area drinking, moderating from 2015 to 2020. And 
never drove my car again, never would have one going out to dinner. But slowly I was starting, I was hitting menopause. I was having nights where I'd go out with friends and just feel like crap in the morning. And just starting to think like, why am I doing this to myself? It's not in line with my values for, I got really into yoga and actually started a yoga prison class. I've never taught yoga, but managed to do it. And um, the whole moderate drinking thing just fell out of alignment with who I wanted to be. So I think from 2015 to 2020, when I did my first live alcohol experiment, I went the route of many people we see that are entering this naked mind, that they're coming at it without a significant rock bottom. They're coming out of it without the, towards it without the AA experience. And there was one night before my daughter had her last high school volleyball match where I felt really hungover that morning, had left my phone somewhere else and was just like, I'm done. I'm just done. And I had been hearing more things like Holly Whitaker, um, Laura McGowan. I'm like, that sounds positive to me. I'm going to check out some things. Came across Annie Grace, This Naked Mind, and just read the book and fell in love with the whole idea. And I'm like, this is the third door. This is, this is what I want for myself. This Mm. gave me so much hope, so much I can do this. Signed up November Live 2020, went through it, um, fell in love with Simon and just listening to everybody. It was just the best experience of my life and changed everything about how I felt, the depression I was feeling. You know, I've heard you talk, Ellie, too, about your first one. Same, same experience. Like, where has this been? Mm-hmm. And that was November of 2020. The end of December, I was on the phone with Scott Pinyard, the head coach, and interviewing for the coaching. Mm-hmm. And I knew I hadn't done counseling for years since before I had been, you know, had my kids. And I had thought about going back for my master's in social work to get that license to practice therapy again, but I applied to case and got in and was even looking at doing an internship at, for substance abuse. And it was all medical model again. And I'm like, why am I doing this? It's so expensive. I'm, I'm 55 now. I don't, you know, I want to get going. I want to help people. I don't want to be in school for two and a half more years. So I talked to Scott and I was like, this is, this is for me that I just loved everything about it. I loved the training. I signed up for the path at the same time and started that in February. Cause I'm like, I want to experience this program as well. And really that's how I got to where I am today. I got certified with Sam in that cohort. And I've had my website up since December and I'm working with some clients on a one-on-one basis now. And I'm, I'm so happy. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I just wake up in the morning knowing that, you know, this all, there's a reason and I can give something back. My relationship with my children is wonderful. Now they know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's come around. You now get to use something that seemed like 
the worst possible thing imaginable and you get to turn it into a you get to polish it into a shiny diamond that's going to help so many people and i think probably for all of us here like whatever your story whatever's happened there was a time for all of us where that very idea seemed like not even on the right like forget impossible like it wasn't even on the radar like all you can see is like what's in front of you right so to get to a point where you can almost feel i mean where you can get to a point where you can be grateful for parts of it or all of it because of how because of what it's given you and what you've learned and how you can help others is like a really crazy thing like yeah. to be able to forgive in that way not just people or and also to let go of the shame and to start moving through that process um is, is so important susan it's so important like where you know where are you in that process do you feel like they're have you moved through that? Are you still yeah. moving through that? Where, where do you feel like you are? I, I am. Um, I just think back in our training when they talked about sharing your scars, mm. but not your wounds. Yeah. And they also talked to us about the importance of sharing your story, even developing your website. But I wasn't ready just to put it out there. Like, here's my whole story, right? on my website. I needed to do it in a way that felt comfortable to me and a way that evolved over time. And someone who really helped me with that was a fellow coach, a coach in the path for me was Carla Atkins, who faced a significant amount of shame in her story. And I, for the very first time, felt comfortable enough to share my full story with her in my path group. Mm. And that was probably last April or May, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And just bringing shame into the light, Mm. it was truly an extraordinary experience. And I can't thank Carla enough for that. And I did the same on a call with Scott. One of our training calls, we had a few each week we could pick from. I shared some there. So it was like this building up of this sharing muscle almost where I'm becoming more and more at ease with it and realize what happened to me doesn't define who I am as a person. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's a slow process and you having me on is a huge step for me in that process. It really is. And I can't thank you enough. And if I can help someone that's sitting there, you know, with a DUI with something worse to give them hope that there's another way to, to find positivity in this, to find the life you want. That if mm-hmm. I came back, people can come back from this. We, well, you are so welcome. And I, lo- I love what you said there, because I think for so many of us, we're looking for the perfect next step or the or I'm not ready to do that yet. Or, you know, I want to build this beautiful life, but it feels like, but and actually looking for perfection or looking, you know, someone's once said to me, like, how do you like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not that I'd ever eat an elephant, anybody. But um, you know, no, it's like harmed. <laughs> no elephants harmed in the make. But it's so true that when we're ready, the very thing that we think would destroy us so often, looking fear in the face, looking shame in the face, is actually the very thing that will heal us and it takes bravery but um mm. 
you know, I know we have, we all have very different um, journeys and stories here, but that's, I think that's an impersonal truth for humans is that the very things that often we're bottling up the rooms that we've kept locked, the things that we're too frightened to open. Actually it's in doing, in doing so when we're ready that we set ourselves free. And um, yeah. yeah, I love that. Just like do it a bit yeah. at a time. You know, you do it in the, in the way that's right for you. You tell your story, you, like you don't owe anything. You like, it's your story. You don't owe anything to anyone in the sense that you haven't got to like do it all. When I first right. started blogging, it was anonymous. You know, I didn't tell my family. And then it became this vehicle of the opposite of, uh, of that. It became this shining beacon of who I was. And I actually spoke to my parents through my words. And then I found the courage to speak to them with, with my actual spoken words. And yeah, like, figure out the right way for you is it journaling is it blogging is it getting coaching is it mm-hmm. it's just such a to start the journey right. is such a magical thing right right and i even i mean when i work with clients i only share and allow myself to be vulnerable when i feel like it would help them i never want to dump this all on anybody i want to use my experience if it can help them in their journey And I also had some fear of when you can share something like this, some people will say, well, I'm not that bad. So it's a reason to continue. And there was a little bit of fear of that in me that I, it's almost like they talk about an AA identifying yourself right out of the room. Um, So that's why I really want to share my story too, to see you know, where people can see where I was coming from, what led up to this for me and how, how shocking it was um, for something like that to, to happen. And I mean, the other thing I wanted to remember to share with people and the wonderful women I met in prison that went through a very similar thing is that some of those people were driving after having three or four drinks and they were hit by another driver through no fault of their own, but because they were the one over the limit, they were charged. So you may think you are okay to do it, but if there's a reckless driver out for whatever reason, you will be the one held responsible. And it's just so important to, you know, if you're going to try to moderate, have those guardrails. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It, it, It really it doesn't need to get to a rock bottom. There, no. There's so many points of intervention and, 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 and I don't mean intervention by like, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a negative thing at all. Like I, when I, when I discovered the truth about how alcohol works with the brain and body, I've never felt so fucking liberated in all my life. I don't have to do this anymore. I'm drinking to relax. I feel terrible i'm stuck and i don't have to do this anymore it was like the most the most liberating thing but there's this really important thread and i'm going to pull it out again it's it's taking responsibility and through every part of um you know that that really traumatic experience for you is the absolute taking of responsibility how you coped through you know house arrest how you faced speaking in court, how you, uh, in your words, like how you learn to cope. 
because it it could have it could have brought you to your knees but instead it was like right well I'm going to look for the light I'm responsible for my own experience I'm going to look for the light and I'm going to I'm going to find the furry friends because they always help us I'm going to bloody well exercise I'm going to clean the toilets if that's what I've got to do and then like you know to to find a role as a tutor so that you can help other people and be of service and contribute setting up yoga in prison it's like it's the most wonderful you know that it, it's it, it's this really interesting story of like you know some real almost like horror to the most divine beauty and you know I'm just, I just I feel so honored that you would come and talk to us about it but the fact that for you it's a you know, it's, it's one of your big steps. Like, I'm like, I'm never going to forget that. It's, you know, when we see you doing great things, I'm going to be able to say she came on our podcast and talked to us right at the beginning. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Same here. Like it's, it's really special. It's so, it's so lovely to be part of that journey and it's so magical. And um, I have no doubt that there will be cues of people that have tuned into this who have just been impacted in the most beautiful way and you know Susan you're you know Susan Joy you have a very fitting name so I'm sure a lot of people will be thinking to themselves bloody hell that's that's an apt name um you know for those women and those people that want to reach out who want to know what you're up to who want to hear more you know, because I'm sure like we would love that you said, you know, the whole prison culture thing, we'd love to have you back on at some point to explore some more, of course. But um, if people can't wait for that and they just want more of you right now, how do they find you? What's going on? Tell us about all that stuff. Um, my website is SusanJoyCoaching.com. And I am really working a lot right now with women who are facing significant transitions at midlife, be it, I know I say divorce because that's what I went through, but it could be leaving a significant relationship. It could be changing careers. Um, those midlife transitions, um, I have a client now that had faced a recent death of her husband and how we turn to alcohol to try to cope with these things. And these women want to change their relationship with alcohol and be able to live their best life after getting through some of these things. So in terms of like the divorce process, I, I love working with women that I think there's a lot that are just stuck in. What do I do? Do I stay or do I go? And their drinking is ramping up and they can't find the clarity they need to make a decision. And they think the drinking's helping them with that, but really it's not. That's the situation I was in. And mm-hmm. how do I reach a decision what to do with my marriage or my relationship? And then women that are in the midst of the divorce process where you're coming home from court and the first thing you want to do is numb. Mm-hmm. So there's that midsection. And then I love working with women who are coming out the other side and realize, okay, maybe I use this, whether it's alcohol with its food, what destructive habit did I get into when I went through my divorce and how can I live my best life moving forward as I begin this new chapter? Mm. Yeah. 
you are going to be one busy lady. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I just absolutely love it. Love it. And really, I would, you know, be glad to speak to anybody that is facing any significant legal consequences and needs some support and guidance um, through that process, because that's a really scary place to be. Yeah. And like tuning, remembering who you really are beneath all the shit that's going on, the story, like that anchor and having somebody who can guide you home is... Well, what a gift, what a gift to be able to offer people, Susan. And um, I would implore anybody who feels like that, you know, in that space to reach out um, because you don't have to do this stuff alone. Um, No. You really don't. Like it's the one thing that I would definitely say to myself if I could go back and if I were willing to listen, it'd be like, all right, mate, like you you can reach out. (laughs) You might think you got this, but you could really, you know, bit of connection would be would be great right now. And I was going to say, too, my dream someday might be to bring this naked mind into prisons. Yes. Yeah. What a cool idea. What an amazing, what a transformative idea as well. Mm. I, um, yeah, some of the coaches that I've worked with for my personal journey, they do work in prisons and, um, yeah, what a wonderful calling. So like, yeah, what an incredible thing to look to, to look into. Amazing. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank and, you. Uh, you know, we're going to put all of your info and stuff in the show notes and stuff like that. And um, I have no doubt I'm going to speak for Ellie here. I'm sure like we're very much looking forward for, for you know, what may be part three, because this may be two yeah. parts and then a third part. So uh, <laughs> sure. 100%. This was great. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you, Susan. It's been an honor. Thank you. All right. So me and Ellie just want to thank Susan for coming on and sharing that again. What? an unbelievable story and what an incredible thing to be using everything that Susan went through as a just an amazing way to change people's lives I think that's so inspirational so um, amazing so for anyone who's listening and who has had been through dark times or is going through a very difficult time right now there is always hope there's always the possibility that for you know incredible things to come out of, of very very dark things um and so yeah what a, what a what an amazing story so thank you susan hey have an amazing tuesday and uh we're super super just you know just excited to see you soon in all the amazing things that we're doing for president and sober have a great week see you soon